Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, how are you? Oh, that was a, you, you really went that question. I thought this was just, you know, you with your niceties. I, yeah, uh, no. So, so, and I have a good answer for you. I was doing a, doing a, a, a workshop uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and interviewing a leader of a, a, of a team. And, and we were talking about, you know, the, the, the value of being, of leaders who stand up and, and kind of, you know, proclaim that I don't know and how that enables people and is actually reassuring. And, uh, and so I said, uh, so how are you doing? He said, fine. And I said, no, I mean, you know, in the context of what we just talked about, how are you doing? And so he paused and he thought about it. And he said, fine, but not fine all the time. And I thought that that was just such a stunning uh, summary of, I think, what is, you know, both true for many, many, many people, um, uh, around the world in this moment, um, the, I guess those of us who are, who are lucky to be fine some of the time, but also you know for someone in his in his situation, you know, sort of you know in a professional world where you often keep a lot of things you know private, that that additional clause, but not all the time, is the growth, is the opening that has been happening over the last year. So I'm gonna I'm gonna plagiarize. <laughs> yeah, I had an experience I'm fine. like that. I'm fine, Scott, but not all the time. I had an experience like that several years ago that completely changed my life. Uh, I was speaking at a church, which I often do, and I saw a couple that I hadn't seen in years. I we had known each other from some conferences and stuff, and they were like they had they were visiting that church that day. We, it was totally random; like we would not plan to be there together or something. And they asked me the same thing. How are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm great. And they're like, really? I was like, no, I'm doing terrible. Uh, <laughs> no, I just lied to your face. Yeah, I totally, I, that's what I did. I actually said, no, I'm, I'm totally lying to you. I'm doing terrible. I'm really, I, I'm really depressed and I'm really struggling. But, you know, I got to put my game face on. And they opened up to me about the struggles they were going through in their marriage. And if they, they didn't know if they were going to make it. And so after I spoke, and it cha- totally changed what I talked about that day. Like I kind of just did an impromptu complete change of the talk and we went to this um brunch spot and spent the whole day together and wound up talking about their life and now they're still together they've adopted several kids from high-risk communities they're doing great Uh, and it changed my career trajectory i actually wound up doing stuff at that church for a few years uh Mm -hmm. because it's so i yeah i think the power of actual of being present and being vulnerable when someone asks you a simple question like "How are you?" is is pretty remarkable. And and you know what's interesting about just <laughs> we haven't even gotten to the topic and we're already off topic. But, you know, I guess that's what we're good at. But what I what I appreciate about just that phenomenon you describe is how, um, I guess I have confidence in things that sort of are. Are, are 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 true from multiple perspectives 
And so there's kind of a, there, there's a lived experience truth of the value of being more open and vulnerable um, around how I'm really doing. Um, you, it, you end up in more authentic and meaningful conversations and relations with people, and there's a relationship capital um, that is formed, which I guess is sort of how the social scientist might explain why that's a good thing. And, and even, you know, like an information theorist would say, like, yeah, of course this is better because you just, you enrich the information that you have to work with. If you think about sort of the quote-unquote traditional workplace of how much, um, how much information we don't bring to, to that team, to that collaboration, it's, 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 it's like information poverty and you expect it to be high-performing and effective and productive and all these things that, that rely upon good information. So there, there's something about this sort of behavioral shift that I think a lot of us are just experiencing in our own lives that, that makes sense um, sort of from whatever perspective you look at it. And, and, yeah, and, and like, it's those kind of yeah. things that I have a lot of confidence. Like, okay, well, that, there must be something true there. I mean, David Brooks in his great book, The Social Animal, talks about this. Like, because it's it's a great book that's all about how basically depth psychology and genetics and social psychology and all this stuff just tell us basically that we're these really complex emotional creatures and and things like communities, institutions, and emotional intelligence are really what move human flourishing forward. But he talks about the whole tip of the iceberg kind of thing, and and. and an iceberg looks huge, right? But but the the mass of it is below the surface of the water. Oh, that's profound. I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down. But that but that's the thing. <laughs> I, that, but when I was just thinking, when you were talking just now, and I, I was thinking about that as you were talking about, you, you go into a meeting or something, and most of you is the tip of the iceberg, mm. the, the you that's thinking mm. about your outfit and the pleasantries you're exchanging and the agenda for the meeting on that stuff. But really, who you are is everything that has to do with your grandparents and mm. stuff that happened zero to two and cultural influences that there are are not mm. present to you most of the time unless you're really mm. reflective mm. about it. And this is part of why I think, you know, one of the things that we'll talk a little bit about today, but Basecamp and the and it's it's emerging kind of connections with things like the new geographical society and things. These are things that are, they're, they're spaces I think where you're trying to, as, as you have said, make new maps or see bigger pictures or, or get to what's under the surface with the iceberg. Um, because mm. mo- I just think most of public culture, I was going to say Western culture because that's what I know. I mean, you spent more time in places like China, so I, I, would, I couldn't speak to that in meaningful ways. Although I know a little bit from friends and stuff that have been there and are Chinese and stuff. But most, Happy I just New think Year, so. Happy New Year, by the way. It's, I don't know if you've had it <laughs> <laughs> since exactly. the New Year. Yeah, but I mean, I or think if most. Or if you're really hip with it, Happy New Year, because Nyo like is that. cow. It's the year of the, anyway. Oh, it's yeah. the year of the cow? Yeah. I love I think, cows. I think, I think it's not actually, is it, is it cow? Is it, I, I, I forget how exactly you translate it into English. Anyway. Sorry. But that's I, it, so much of public life in any culture doesn't get to these things. And I think, you know, you've curated some spaces, which I'm really grateful for, that are trying to make it a, a kind of both safe but adventuresome space to, t- to kind of be in those places that's hard to talk, that are hard to talk about. 
so so maybe put it this way and i i, I like the the iceberg metaphor um i was doing some some visioning work with uh well you were there like with with our own team and, and trying to figure out where do, where does all this go why are we doing it and 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 what's the impact that we can have in the world by creating these spaces and what's interesting is when you talk about vision and vision statement it feels like feels like the world is full of beautiful inspiring visions um and yet i think it's also full of a sort of cynicism or doubt that we're, we're going to get there and i suppose the question will be well of course how can you expect us to get there when we're not allowed to bring our whole selves right like if it's just a piece of myself that is going there how am i ever going to arrive and and, and it's kind of when you think about it, yeah, of course it's absurd. We, if, if we are going to, you know, arrive at these beautiful visions we describe for our team or organization ourselves, whatever, we got to bring the whole self along. And I suppose sort of, as you said, so we, we think that there's, there's a real opportunity um, for us um, with these conversations that you and I are having to to connect with and feed into uh, some of these broader public conversations that we've been a part of and been helping to convene um, each month. And so last Sunday, you know, we, 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 we took part in, in the most recent of these base camps. And, and the question that we all gathered around was, uh, so, you know, this phrase that's getting bandied about everywhere, build back better, what does that phrase mean to you and and it seemed to me the experience of talking around that was um i i personally just really connected with people's sense that if if we're going to get anywhere better i want my whole self to be there yeah that was true for me in my um and by the way for people who are new like if you're just listening to this podcast or it's maybe your first or second episode this the base camp community it's just it's really simple it's a community that that meets monthly right now online virtually through zoom and we gather around a big topic or question and chris kind of frames the question for us we do a, a kind of grounding exercise to get us reflective chris does a framing and we spend a huge t- chunk of time, like 45 minutes right often in small groups with people all around the world. And so you don't know who's going to be in your small group. Um, it's wonderful. And I had that experience that so much of build back better, which is this kind of phrase that's, I think we talked about in the last podcast. It, it, it started with the, from the UN around disaster relief and a, a way to think through infrastructure projects post-disaster relief like with earthquakes and hurricanes and stuff and now it's of course been everywhere i mean it's it's it, it's it's ubiquitous i mean it, 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 it becomes funny so you ubiqu- do like a google search and just see like do an image search and just see how many different organizations have put that phrase on kind of the you know the the, the cover image of their web page of their latest report because it's such a I think it's it's felt to be a great mobilizing phrase to get energy behind, you know, whatever your agenda is and you think that the world needs more of it. Yeah. So when we do these meetings, uh Chris then collates kind of or, or uh, collates the wrong word that sounds like um like you're in a, in a back room in Staples or something but yeah, kind of that's integrates usually where it happens, yeah. Exactly, you're just back there. Creates a kind of output 
um, document that tells the story. A log book. Yeah, a log book. Excuse me. Um, a log book where um, you know, he, you know, you kind of bring together some of the best insights from all around the world. And again, it's a global community, so you're you're quite literally bringing in insights from all over the the globe. And you send that to all the participants, so you get actually a snapshot of what happened. So what we're going to do uh, and on this podcast with some regularity, like monthly, is after these monthly global meetings, we'll spend some time um, just reflecting on that big question and that and and the logbook and what we learned. So, so Chris, and you and learn learn is the word. I mean, there's something about. Sorry to 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 interrupt you, but there is definitely something about. Um, when you can sit in a room with uh, a diversity of people who just, you know, who, who, who frankly come from different worlds. I mean, we live in the same world and in some ways we do not live in the same world. It without fail, at least my own experience of it is it just, it, it awakens depth of, of understanding. Um, and you know, if, if we, <laughs> if we could all just understand uh, one another and the world a little bit better. I'm sure it would do the world uh, no end of good. But but I experience it each month. I'm like wow, I just I wasn't thinking that way, um, and now I see it. Um, inevitably, I think at the end of these conversations, we realize that the question we should have been asking is dot dot dot. Right? And you I, just, I, I you like just can't get there without going through the journey. And there's something you said which I really like that we seem with technology and mass culture, we seemingly live in more and more similar worlds, but we really don't. Right. I mean, that's a veneer, right? Because we all use the same apps to connect to a meeting or we're all on, you know, there's only several options for social media. Like we have the shared reality. It it, it is really shared, but it's not the same. And I think oftentimes you need space and time to dissect what's really still incredibly particular despite the shared world we live in. This word shared, I think we'll keep coming back to it because uh, I think a lot of what, and, and I think we all kind of know whatever sector we're in or however we're kind of tuned into the world that, that there's not as much shared meaning um, among people as would be really helpful <laughs> to exist sometimes. And, you know, with the, with the metaphor of base camp, how I sometimes think about it is that uh, we often start the journey much too far down the path. You know, I see this problem, hey, let's get together and solve it, not, not fully appreciating just how much of what we understand the problem to be, of what we understand impact to be, uh, is not shared. And we really do kind of, if we want to get far together, if we want to arrive at, at a substantially better vision of something, um, you, can't, you can't skip that beginning of the journey where you figure out, you know, what, what meanings do we share? And, I, and so, you know, this conversation, so that's kind of, you know, a very high abstract thought but you know we live in this moment where there is this broad public slogan around building back better which actually begs exactly that question i mean like what what does that mean you know better better for whom better for when 
better for what? And and if we if we start the journey together at yeah, we should build back better without going back up the trail and asking um yeah, better for whom, better for what? Better for when? Um back to when? Like what's your reference point? Are you thinking back to you know as we said on on Sunday, you know, for you, was it better before Trump or before Biden, if you're American, right? And you're into politics and things like that. Um, so there's so much to explore there that if we did, then maybe then maybe things like Build Back Better would be more than a phrase and would be some kind of common um, understanding of of where we are and where we want to get to. Yeah, and, and it's interesting is even when you reference my own American context. I can't help but sometimes do that. Exactly. You you know, I lived through the political campaign here in the States, which was, you know, again, its presence is ubiquitous in, in, glo- in global media. I mean, because it's just the nature of the United States. But I, I don't think I heard a good conversation on Build Back Better in media like, i mean it didn't like i mean it mm. didn't it, i mean nobody sat and said like what the hell does this mean like <laughs> and just say like nobody stopped and said could we just take a half hour and ask what this means it, it's interesting because we did do it with make america great again there was a lot of ink spilled and a lot of time mm. spent talking about what that meant the whole maga movement but I again I can't think of and I, I watch a lot of cable news and PBS and things like that. And I just can't think of a time where I heard some people sit and pull apart a phrase like that. And so yeah, I, yes, yes, yes. And I think I mean I think if you kind of Google online, you can find you know really interesting thought pieces that critique. Of course there's gonna be all sorts of critiques out there, but what does this mean? Um, I mean, if, if you write, if you write opinion columns for a living, that's an, that's a freebie. (laughs) Let's, let's critique what that means. But what you don't find is the conversation that invites society to get together and explore it together. And, and what I, what, what seemed resoundingly important to me, uh, or clear to me, um, from, from the last uh, base camp where we, we did exactly that was it wasn't so much the outcome that was important to people, it was the conversation itself. Yeah. It was, there was a yearning for a conversation to ask, what do we mean by these words that we use? Um, and to be a part of that conversation. And, and it's actually not that surprising. I mean, any organization that has ever done a kind of, you know, a visioning exercise, they come up with their vision statement and that kind of stuff. If, if, if they're good, they know that, it's not the sentence we come up with that's important. It's the process that got us there that really helps us to feel and, and to be in some kind of deeper understanding, a relationship of deeper understanding with one another because we've gone through that process. I loved there was a, a woman on the, uh, in, in, around our campfire from Australia, Josie, and, and she said... Um, I'm quoting her now, don't use words that have been debased. Use words that have meaning 
to people and we need to reclaim language. And that was kind of a common thread that, that a lot of people expressed. We need, you know, we need to use different words, words that are, somebody said, uh, Aki in the Netherlands, words that are not hijacked by false promises in, in the past. And uh, Jeff in Wishart, he talked about, you know, this, this conversation around what does it mean? It should involve everyone, not be a kind of top-down global narrative. And, and so I left the conversation just wondering, like, of course it's a clever slogan and, and it makes sense that, you know, that kind of would come out from a marketing exercise. It's alliterative, it's clever, so let's use it. But when you step back and just think about where society is at, what, what we need to move forward, I couldn't help but feel, I couldn't help but ask myself the question, what opportunities have we missed to have that conversation that, that the world is yearning for. Um, to just be asked, what does this mean to you? It's interesting that, that there's a great Thornton Wilder quote. Um, I used to do a podcast called New Persuasive Words with a friend. And I think we got to 200 and some episodes and just kind of stopped doing it. But um, the title was based on a Thornton Wilder quote that said, the revival in religion will be a rhetorical problem new persuasive words for defaced or degraded ones. Hmm. And, and that say, to me is the beginning of that again. About the yeah. Rhetorical it, problem? It, he said, he says the revival in religion will be a rhetorical problem. Hmm. New persuasive words for defaced or degraded ones. And hmm. I, I, that's just so right. Cause I think any kind of revival and intellectual renewal or any Renaissance, that we'll have any kind of mm. will be figuring out. I mean, on one level, like people say things like talk is cheap, right? Which, mm. which there's a truth to that, right? If, if, if talk is, is basically meaningless um, and, and not, it doesn't have integrity with action or communal solidarity or, or the vast majority of things that make, human flourishing possible. Sure. Okay. You can say talk is cheap, but talk is priceless. I mean, words create reality, right? And when we get in conversation and when somebody comes across the right turn of phrase or the right metaphor, right? Or the right verbal picture, new worlds are, can be born. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Talk is cheap. Meaning is priceless how do we get to meaning without talk? Yeah. And, right, so, <laughs> um, and I guess the question is, you know, yeah, how do, we, how do we get to more meaningful talk, the talk that helps us to um, infuse words with new meaning, kind of the, the sort of rhetoric that Cicero would appreciate, where it was an important act, um, and I guess that's what we're trying, I guess that's what we're all about, is trying to explore that. Yeah. But I think you're totally right. It's, it's interesting how, you know, rhetoric has sort of, in, in, I guess, modern just usage become a kind of, um, I mean, it's a bad thing, right? Just being rhetorical. It's kind of, you're, you're sort of speaking without content. Um, and that's, Exactly to your point and, 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 and to that quote. 
probably a big mind shift we need to make. And that, and then people wonder how 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 has the meaning of words become so so um, corrupted is one word, but you know, become so plastic, so pliable. You can make it mean anything. And well, of course, if you don't pay any attention to the value of language and the value of talk, then it's going to be very easy to do that. Not my, yeah. not my, not my most insightful digression, but this, we're definitely on something. Well, now, and also, you need spaces where language is treated differently, right? When when you go mm-hmm. to say a poetry reading or something, right? You, the way people treat language is very different, right? There's a sense in which speaking has a different um and 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 the term like critical and criticism i mean criticism has this really kind of freighted sense of meaning now but a.o scott who's the new york times film and tv critic he wrote a book on criticism and basically he's like what criticism does at its best is brings together the objective and the subjective that we know that the experience of beauty and, and aesthetics is, is something personal and subjective, but but what criticism does is help help ground it in a more communal sensibility. And I think getting the right kind of people and the right kind of conversational culture to cultivate a certain reverence for 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 conversation and words and connection and human meaning i mean that's priceless Hmm. what else what else sort of was unearthed for you bubbled up for you from uh from the conversation on sunday you know when we did get a global group of people together who who believe in the meaning of words and conversation yeah for me it was all about unknowing hmm say more about that I mean, like you, I've spent time in, in, in graduate school and doctoral programs. And, and when you're in doctoral programs and things like that and in intellectual circles, uh, the value... I remember, I remember sitting in a seminar in Princeton and a guy, uh, this one guy from New Zealand said to this other colleague, this humble Midwestern guy, he is said... It, is this a joke? <laughs> no, no, it's a real experience. And he said, a "Guy from this Princeton guy said, in New Zealand walk into a bar." And- exactly right, right. So we're sitting in this like beautiful seminar room in Princeton, and this New Zealand guy says, "Have you ever read Christopher Dawson's works on, in, on uh, you know, on on intellectual, you know, history and and the philosophy of science?" And this guy Kevin goes, "I've never even heard of Christopher Dawson," <laughs> and. My advisor was leading the seminar and he stopped and said, see what Kevin just did? Watch that. He's like, everything in this culture that we live in will push you against saying, I don't know. Hmm. I've never heard of. I'm unfamiliar, right? Everything pushes you to basically lie, right? Hmm. Or say you know, Hmm. or say you know more than you do, right? And I just think what was really, what's refreshing to me was we were just talking about what we didn't know and all these kind of uncertainties that a a phrase like build back better conjures up. And I I just felt like, I felt like I was in a safe place 
to do something brave, hmm. <laughs> to say, I don't know. Like, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. Like, it was really, and, and everybody, there was this, like, there was a comfort in, in um, ambiguity, ambivalence, wonder that, uh, that again, it's really hard to find those spaces. I, I think it's hard to, um, as, as a kind of convener of them, I would say it's also really hard to create them. I mean, yeah. I'm, gl- I'm glad you had an un- unambiguous experience of kind of we're all in the tent of not knowing, uh, which for those who weren't there, uh, a few of us were. Uh, we did a before COVID, we did a, a physical base camp outside of London. We had, you know, 100 people flying from all over the place. And, um, you know, playing with the exploration theme, we had some tents and I encourage people to set them up if they want to. And somebody set up a tent there in kind of the middle of our floor and took a big poster uh, and wrote on it, Tent of Not Knowing. <laughs> and uh, and he stood up and said, so I'm going to be holding uh, office hours um, in the Tent of Not Knowing. You know, uh, what are we going to talk about? Don't know. What are you going to get out of it? Don't know. You know, when are my office hours? Don't know. And there was a line outside that tent <laughs> for the entire gathering because I think everyone intuitively felt, yeah, I need more of less. I need more of that kind of space. And and in my experience, and counting on Sunday, like it's it it is difficult. And you talk about like I, you know, I I I I went. I am an academic. It, I have a difficult time staying in that tent. Um. And I think we all do, and we all bring, you talk about we live in a world where it is hard to say, I don't know. And that world doesn't just fall away when we arrive at base camp. We have to work at it every moment, kind of reminding ourselves that this is a space where I can, not only can I not know, but I can explore the stuff, the perspectives that maybe make me uncomfortable. Um, and that's part of not knowing. It's not a kind of, it's not a kind of meditative calm of living with ambiguity. It's a kind of bravery to explore what might feel like unsafe territory. And, um, yeah, and my experience is that it is, it is incredibly powerful, especially with, uh, I, because I think these spaces are hard to find. I think you're right. I think the world is trying to kind of close them down. And um, and it's very easy. It's a lot easier to hang out in a group of people who are affirming of everything you say and nodding their head all the time. Um, and you walk out of there feeling affirmed. Um, yeah, I mean, Jonathan Haidt, you know, the great moral psychologist, hmm. Uh, he talks about this. He, you know, he talked in his book, The Righteous Mind. He said, morality binds and it blinds. And he's like, look, you know, basically what, you know, we do evolutionarily is we develop, you know, moral codes and that bind us together in tribal society. And then some of that evolves into great cultures and things like that. But the, the binding comes at the, co- at the cost of blinding. Right. And so, so you, and you can't live without the binding. And like the blinding is not necessarily a nefarious thing or, or bad. It's just, but it's necessarily a human being can't 
see everything all the time. But it is part of our evolutionary evolutionary journey the capacity to do some more unblinding, right? To see more. Mm-hmm. And and can we actually get into non-tribal spaces? Right. Right. Is is that part of the evolutionary journey where like, hey, tribe was really important to get where we are. Right. But is the next thing non-tribalism? And that just takes, I think, psychologically, mm. a lot of capacity for dissonance. Right. So, okay. So, can I? So, on this, and going back to our earlier conversation with the word. So, you know, one of the challenges of when we get together is people start to self-describe what together is. Um, is it a community? That's a word that you've used. Is it a tribe? I'm, I'm starting to get really a lot more comfortable with the word, a society. And I guess what I'm, and, and you've just helped me understand why. I think part of it is um, the space for dissonance. In a tribe, and I might be doing injustice to the meaning of the word, but in I think in popular parlance, I feel of it as a tribe as a quite close-knit group who, who think very similarly. I think that's how it's often used. Finding your tribe is finding people who agree with me. Uh, who are interested in very much the same things, who see the world the same way I do. And, and you think sure. evolutionarily, the tribe, basically, hmm. everybody, and, gen, and generally there's a gender breakup, but basically everybody does the same thing too and has the same skills, right? Hmm. There's hunters and gatherers and things like that. And, and you, everybody is a hunter or a gatherer or kind of thing. You know, there's not... Space There's not a lot of free time for other things to differentiate. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we, we kind of like you know we we spend all of our time surviving. Yeah, yeah. And a very very few of us, you know, we manage to have just enough surplus for a couple of people to be a shaman or, you know, to kind of create some, some rituals around the tribe. But otherwise, I'm I'm mainly out, yeah, hunting and gathering and sleeping. Yeah. So, yeah. So for me, this word society maybe just creates a bit more daylight from that and, and, and kind of consciously says that I don't expect consonance. Um, yeah. But and no your, question, and your relationship like, to, the, just, to yeah. the superstructure can be really varied, right? You could be mm, right. in the middle of a metropolis, right? At coffee shops and on, on the subway or the tube or whatever. Or you could be like an American author like Wendell Berry living on a farm in rural Kentucky who's still in the society and, con- and contributing in ways. So I think that that's a really helpful way of f- framing it because it allows for a really complex and diverse set of social relationships within the whole. Right. Yeah, I found so interesting you talk about not knowing. I found that I mean that 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 tension between sort of knowing and not knowing, I think is is alive when a when a a group of people with some dissonance get together around a big question like what does build back better um mean to you? And then I think when you get people talking about it, we all kind of live in a tension of what I know, what I know, what I know and I think I should hold on to, what I know and I think I should challenge or maybe let go of. And 
And I, I just think there's so much interesting work for us each to do in, in kind of, I don't know how to finish that sentence, but what I'm thinking of, you know, that kind of that, that classic sort of wisdom, there's what you know, and there's what you don't know, and there's what you don't know that you don't know, right? Right. So if you imagine that pie, and there are those three sections to it, it seems to me that 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 that's interesting that picture of that pie but but it seems to me that the more interesting thing uh now is to is to sort of like play with where we've drawn the sections so there's this stuff that i know but actually that's probably the thing i need to work on the hardest you know how how much of what i know is actually blinding me yeah, from seeing other things. And how much of what I know should I rely on? Because it is, if you will, you know, enduring knowledge or good knowledge. Um, and, 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 and I think like developing a healthy curiosity around that, you know, to stop, to stop growing what we know which I think is implied with the pie. There's what you know, don't know, and don't know that you don't know. And the goal is to fill the whole pie with what you know. Right, right. That would be, that would be um, like omniscience. And, and what I'm saying is, well, hold on. I'm not so sure that that's what we should be trying to do. <laughs> I think we should be taking the part that we know and start interrogating it and say, do we? Do I? Well, and if you were omniscient, you could never have another relationship in your life. Oh, that's interesting. Like I always think, right, you know, I would right. do I would do this exercise with undergrads mm. where I would say, when I tell undergrads, I would ask them, all right, what's your name? What, you know, what's your major? And what superpower would you have? And when everybody said, whenever anyone said like telepathy or mind reading, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, let's think about what that means. Because if you had omniscience, it, you couldn't relate to other creatures anymore. And part of the joy of being a creature is discovery, right? And exploration. And if you were omniscient, there'd be no more discovery ever. Are you right? saying because you, there's just nothing in the relationship for you? Yeah. Well, yeah. The, part of the beauty of relationship and, and being in the world is discovery and disclosure hmm. and learning things. And, hmm. you know, and, 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 and if, and the thing, the omniscience kind of, uh, it's interesting too. The other thing right. I was thinking about knowledge was Irenaeus was this second century um, Christian thinker in Lyons, uh, which I guess is in France. There you go, name and, dropping again. Yeah, well, he was a genius, second century. I mean, he was an early like you and Irenaeus, this, hey? Yeah, Irenaeus. I don't know if I would have liked him or not, but I mean, he was, and he didn't write that much. And we don't have much that he's written. But well, why'd you bring him up? <laughs> because he has this great phrase. Right, exactly, exactly. Right? He has this great phrase where he says, God is light, but unlike any other light we've ever known. And so what does that mean? Because he gives with one hand and takes away with the other. Mm. So the analogy, so he brings an analogy, says God is light, but then he says, but unlike any light we've ever known. So then what do we know about the divine? If you say that, right? But that's a great picture of so much of how all knowledge works like the, everything is through analogy there's always similarity and dissimilarity and it's often the mystery that outweighs that and so i think what you're saying about the the knowing and the unknowing 
the, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Right, and so the more the more pictures no, you draw, <laughs> <laughs> right? But isn't that always the thing, right? Like you, mm. like, like when you're a sophomore in college, and you sit there and you hear your first lecture on Plato, right? And you really feel like you're smart. You go home to Thanksgiving and you say, "Oh, you guys are in Plato's cave, and you guys are all just idiots." And, da, da, da. and then you you do graduate work, and you realize I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> right so the more you know right there or there's this great phrase that says a saint is someone that confesses more about less so the idea is ideally they're sinning less but they spend more time in the confessional because they real they realize the impact of even their little venial sins right like this kind of thing where and i think there's something about once you get a little knowledge you think oh my goodness man i really know something about play i'm gonna go t- teach my family in Regina or South Jersey about, you know, what I've learned at university. Right. And then you get a different part in life and you're like, Oh my goodness, do I know anything? (laughs) And you're always, you know, and I think that's part of the beauty of, um, some of these kind of cultures you're convening is it's, it's a place where that sensibility is not shunned. Uh, which is which I don't experience very often in, in in most of you know North American culture. I I I love that that kind of that stark that stark phrase that you began with. You said kind of what you do with your students around like if you knew everything, then then basically relationship would be over for you. Um and and it it, it it makes so much sense in the experience of, you know, when you get together with a diverse group of people. And sometimes it's a great conversation and sometimes it's not. And I think there is a really strong correlation with how how much you're willing to disclose that you don't know. Um and and if you can come with that sense of I am going to find something to disclose that I don't know, then that creates the opening for the connection, for the relationship to begin to to form. But if it's just transactional around kind of everybody putting on what you know, well, this is what I know, um, it it somehow there's. And sometimes it's informative. Okay, that's interesting. But I don't feel closer to you. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's, I I wonder how often we sacrifice relation for information on the altar of information. When it, it's interesting because when you have information, you don't get you don't necessarily get relation. But if you have relation, you get information, right? Like like if you have real relationships, you you get knowledge and data, and you know more about the world. But but it doesn't work the other way around necessarily. Right? You could sit in a library on the internet and get a lot of data outside of the context of relationship. So it doesn't. It, I, I think it's an interesting thing that doesn't go two ways. Library, you say library, and library for me is an interesting 
um, case study at the moment in in you know asking is it is it better for the world to come at a place from of knowing or not knowing if you think if and and you base we've been doing base camps for um for libraries and more and more library systems it seems like a kind of a marriage made in heaven because you know libraries are these revered public spaces sort of gateways to new knowledge uh and learning and and base camp is trying to be a space for people to 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 gather and learn from one another and you know most libraries um let's say it, i know for sure in north america and western europe i don't know about about the whole world um are really struggling right now with this what feels like an existential problem around who are we for as a public forum we think we're committed to both you know free speech and inquiry and inclusivity and a lot of the the kind of the the the, the social contests underway right now put those two things in opposition right so you know concrete examples that you know, you know, libraries now are coming up with policies around one way or the other. Is you know, are are uh, you know groups that say you know deny the existence of transgender individuals are they welcome or invited to speak at the library? And you know, like <laughs> great example of free speech, inclusivity. Um, and, and libraries feel like, and we need to answer this question. We need to know the answer. And I'm starting to wonder if, you know, maybe that's the mistake. Is to say, we have to know the answer. Maybe it's more valuable, more helpful for society, which is struggling with these questions itself everywhere, to say, we see the question. This is an important yes question. yes because as you and frame that question a space that is going to like provide a space for society to explore this question we don't know the answer and that hits me so personally your example because you know and people that have listened to this podcast would i you know would have a sense but if you're new like i i'm a i'm a i'm a christian religiously i mean i i check a box you know if you if you if there was a you know demographic form, I would check a religious box, and you probably wouldn't um, check an explicit box. Um, hmm. That's true. And so I, I'm somebody that you know supports transgender rights and has lots of gay and trans friends and stuff. But some of my best friends in the faith are Roman Catholics, and whatever their own views on these issues. They're in an institution that a lot of people would view as regressive on this stuff, even though the current pope is has been lauded in many circles as somebody that's opening doors to LGBT people and 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 doing a lot of good in the world for human rights. And so it's just so messy and complex. And even that example, which you I think you didn't mean to trigger something personally in me, but as a Christian, I feel like. Oh, it's so messy because how do I, because I'm, I'm on this, I'm on the side of, uh, liberative kind of inclusion, uh, of LGBT folks. And yet I don't want to, but yet I can't say that the people in the Roman Catholic church 
are not part of my family. And I don't know how to go negotiate all that. Right. And 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 then so hanging in that in that space, I like we can go to sort of unsafe spaces together. Do you yearn for the answer or do you yearn for the conversation? The conversation. Now, yeah, because there's not an right. answer. So, there's not an answer. So there's why not do we an have answer. libraries that are like we need to give society the answer to this question? It's it's as you going back about twenty minutes. Like we live in this whole edifice of knowing, and you've got to know. And if you're you know a manager of something, you've got to know the answers. You've got to make these decisions, and 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 it's it's causing us to miss some of the biggest and most obvious opportunities for growth. And, you know, especially if you think of, a, you know, public institutions who's, who's, who, you know, well, you know, on one side, libraries are wondering, like, what is our role in the world where everything is digital? It's to be the public space where, where these kind of explorations around meaning and the development of shared meaning can happen. Um, but we're not going to see that opportunity if we're stuck in a, in a space of we've got to know, we've got to know the answers. And it, it, to me, maybe it's only in my, my head, but I see the relationship between the conversation we, we had on Sunday around, you know, what does building back better mean? And it's not the answer that people yearned for, that people find meaningful. It's, it's the conversation. It's the opportunity to unpack um, the different values at stake, the, the, the kind of... Com- the, the struggle to um, resolve the tensions between, you know, what I, what my community, what the world needs now, what, what I know it might need in the future, what, what, what I need versus what you, like, these are the things that we know need work. Yeah. Why can't we find the spaces to work on them? Right, yeah. Yeah, no, no, and and I think you know this is the one. You know, do you remember the the Covey Seven? What is it? The the oh, the the, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Highly Effective People, right? I I am not one of those people. I'm pretty sure. No, but here's the thing. So he has these quadrants, right? There's the there's the unimportant and the unurgent. Like that's like you know. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Games, right? The two by two matrix. That I understand. I was a consultant right. So he's got the, he's got the the urgent but unimportant. Right. Somebody's like screaming. You got to return my voicemail. You got to. Right. There's the you know, but the, the the prize quadrant is the um the important but not urgent. Right, like important and urgent is, oh my gosh, I just got shot in my kneecap and I got to go to the hospital, right? But the important but not urgent is, oh my gosh, we've got to figure out ways to have more meaningful conversation around dissonance and ways to to inhabit unknowing so that we can have better approaches to a complex world that really needs healing and wholeness. So that's really important, right? But it's not going to clamor for urgency. It's not going to like jam out your inbox or jam out your voicemail or it's. And so that's, I mean, part of what I think you've done remarkably well with Basecamp and, and, and some of these new initiatives we're, we're both involved in um, is I feel like you're clamoring for the important, not urgent. 
right? And saying like, mm. let's give a little more urgency in the best sense to these things that are normally important but not urgent. Oh, let's get around to that. Yeah, that's great. Like how right. many times have you been in organizational meetings where, where somebody raises the, the, the question that the organization or community or society should be dealing with? And somebody says, yeah, 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 we definitely got to get to that. And then the next thing mm. just mm. clamors for the attention and it just gets buried. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I, I think another way I'd put it is, does, does it have to take a pandemic Yeah, for us to get real about what actually matters? Which it did. It, which is it the did, experiment, w- right? Yeah, which it did for Basecamp, I think. In I, some well, that's weird, a, I mean, that's, yeah, exactly. that's the beautiful the, irony is that until yeah. the pandemic, we thought, oh, we're trying to figure out so hard how, do we, how, to, how to do this stuff that feels important. And, and, you know, tortured planning and planning and planning for the next time we're going to do it and get together. And then we realize that, well, you can't do that. Well, let's just do what we need. Yeah, right, right, another. right, right. Let's create the space and figure it out from, from there. Uh, Laura, and I, I, I forget where Laura was, was joining in from, um, but in the logbook, she described it as a culture of investigation, which I think is beautiful. And you kind of this... This you know this urgent versus important, I think you know on on the important and the extremely not urgent but most deeply impactful is is when we think at the level of culture. What does the culture have to be in order for us to be spending more time, um, spending less time, you know, being the the language police? And more time doing the hard yards of creating shared meaning. Yeah. In words. You know, spending spending less time growing that piece of the pie, which is what I know. Yeah. And spending less time doing that and and more time discovering, revealing, disclosing what I don't know. Because it's it's way it's a way more powerful project for me to connect up with Scott and other people and kind of create this you know these interlocking circles of like an ecosystem of knowledge than it is for me to have it all. I love uh, I we're gonna have to go deeper into this whole idea of like the omniscient person is totally alone. Yeah. It kills the ecosystem. And then to think about it, so it's like go the other way. You know, it's can we create knowledge ecosystems? Um, and then I don't need to have it all as long as we're connecting and helping each other to see. And in fact, it's going to be a it's going to be a healthier ecosystem if we think of it as as connecting up rather than trying to kind of acquire it all. Yeah, and the joy of the joy of real relation and relationship. I mean, two base camps ago, it was funny. I think I was with all Canadians, and they were like, "It was," and it was it was said flatteringly. I mean, it was a very nice thing. They were like, "You don't sound like a normal American. You're very self critical." <laughs> and but it was nice because I become friends. Unfair stereotype of Americans, right? Right, right. But I exactly. Get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it is. I mean, but there's enough of it rings true, and like mm-hmm. and. I become friends with some people in that group and particularly a guy 
who's like a Canadian retiree who I talk with probably a couple times a month now um, hmm. it, where he gives me a space to say to where I can say, Hey, here's what I'm seeing in America right now. Can you help me unpack it and process it? And he's really grateful to talk about it. And he's really smart. Um, you know, like there's several, I've met several, like, it's funny, my new, um, a demographic of favorite people is Canadian retirees. Cause I've met a couple Canadian retirees that I found really just incredible. Um, you know, one is a classics scholar from Regina. One is a guy who's retired from Goodyear and has a commercial real estate background. This other guy has a sterling business background and they're all readers and thinkers. And so like you wind up like in, in what context does an American podcast producer find Canadian retirees to process life with and, and ask questions? That it, is a niche. Yeah. I think, I think you've got a whole new spinoff podcast there. I like it. I Talking like with Canadian retirees. But it's just to process interesting. life with. To process, not process, process. Process life with. Process. Well, I mean, there's definitely, you know... And, it's more than Canadians and Americans. I mean, I remember, uh, so Fareed, who was joining from London, you know, for him, the whole narrative of building back better, he, he went right to um, the disintegration of society, which, which was, was his personal experience um, in um, uh, living in London. Mm. And, and how, like, that's not a knowledge problem. That's a connection problem. There was because you're I'm, saying because if you're in London, ostensibly you have you know like London, New York City. I mean, these are the places where you have more access to knowledge than most people have ever had in world history. It's interesting, you know, big cities, uh, and it's one of the fun things because uh, we can kind of just your mind can just careen between these dimensions when we're all kind of on the in the same conversation together. Um, you know, Jeff, who's on the call from, from a hamlet of 50 people, and Fareed, who's on the call from London, um, talking about uh, the social experience of disconnection, atomization. And it, it is, I think, much easier to kind of have a village neighborhood feel when that's all there is. And in large cities, so many of the spaces where where a sense of kind of connection with the village forms have been hollowed out by just modernity, right? Like the village street market where kind of, you know, you would go and buy your produce on a daily basis and meet the people who produce it uh, doesn't exist anymore, except, you know, kind of in a few very, very gentrified neighborhoods. But, you know, for the most part, um, you know, even before you know, living in lockdown, you can, you can exist and you can, you spend a lot more time interacting with people, um, in other parts of the world, uh, than you do in your own neighborhood in a yeah. city like London for a lot of people who, you know, it, they're here because they're in a hub industry or whatever, things like that. The, for me, the, the most stunning example of, you know, so, I feel like we've 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 connected the dots between knowing and not knowing and and connection and disintegration and how you know not knowing and the disclosure of not knowing is the key 
to creating connection. The, the, the most brilliant example for me on Sunday's call of, of just the, the, the power of connection and the kind of relationship capital within connection was, uh, was in what was for me the morning conversation. So we're doing these, you know, uh, twice, uh, now on the same day, one in the morning for sort of people in Europe and Asia and Australasia, uh, and then one in what is my London evening for people sort of in, in the Americas and Europe and Africa. Um, there was this woman from, oh, she's Chinese from Beijing, but actually in a small fishing village that she dialed. It must have had terrific 4G coverage because her signal was strong. But she talked about, <laughs> she talked about sort of the, the Chinese youth experience of, um, you know, dating uh, uh, men and women um, and, and meeting them on an app, mm. um, which is very common. Um, and she said, you know what, so I live in a, in, in a life where all of the spaces where you sort of randomly meet people are pretty much hollowed out. You know, you meet people from work, you, you, you go home, you connect with people on an app. That's how you find people. And uh, the apps that they use in China, the, the one that she was using, it, it shows you sort of like if you have mutual connections this person before you swipe um, and when you connect with them. And she says that it is a world of difference, the civility with which you are treated if you have uh, at least one common connection, uh, no matter how distant it might be, than if you have none. That, that one shared connection is enough to establish a kind of civility. Yeah. And I wonder if, and it, I was thinking when I heard, I like, wow, what if Twitter did that? What you know, what would that change to the tenor of conversation when you're kind of giving feed? If you if you understood the people that were the intermediaries, yeah, between you and that person, um, because it does seem that that's anyway. I don't I don't know quite where to go with the implications of that. Just my mind was blown by the the clarity of the example. She's like, yeah. we're talking about all these big things, and I'm telling you, in my app experience, it makes a difference. Yeah, it's interesting because when you think about Build Back Better, right? And I, I can't believe I didn't think of this sooner. I didn't think about this in our lead-up kind of stuff with this, but my favorite kind of sci-fi you know, uh, serial drama stuff is all post-apocalyptic, like The Walking Dead or Battlestar Galactica. Or, I can't wait to see where this is going to go. Because here's <laughs> the thing: those post-apocalyptic, right? Like it, it's great because it says, "What if we lost everything we knew? Who would we be?" Hmm. Right. Okay. And every, whether it's Battlestar Galactica or The Walking Dead, lost every great kind of thing that's got a post-apocalyptic element to it everything boils down to connection and relationships hmm. right like it, 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 it's always it, people find themselves again and then you know there's different you know there's different um answers to how you build back right i mean there you know i mean for those who are battlestar fans i'm not gonna you know spoil i'm not gonna spoil it but i mean it's interesting the decision they make at the end in light of their experience with technology. But then, you know, the walking dead is very different in their approach to technology or things like this. 
But it all comes through building of trust, connection, and vulnerability, um, kind of necessarily through trauma and dislocation and, and, and things like that. But that's where I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, I wonder how much Build Back Better would be better informed or, or, or more robustly informed. Let's use a word like robustly informed. If people that traded around in these phrases spent more time in like sci-fi, post-apocalyptic <laughs> fiction, to think about... Well, right. These are great projections and imaginative laboratories of what these things can look like and mean, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that that. But you, what you can do, like, so so you could base camp with the Walking Dead scenario, right? Like, we could have no technology, no power, hmm. no electricity, right? And we could still base camp. There are other things we couldn't do, right? But faced with a kind of, we're in the zombie apocalypse, which is so much, by the way, on, on a different note, is so much more comforting to me than vampires. Because <laughs> vampires are smart. <laughs> like, I mean, we're going to lose to the vampires, I right. think. Whereas it's, as long just, as you can get on top of a tricell box or some like raised platform. Exactly. The zombies are kind of, you know, they're, 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 yeah. their frontal lobe is shot. They're just looking to eat. They're usually not that fast. But in the zombie apocalypse, we could base camp. You know, see, we could. But, we, but va- see, that's vampires are so misunderstood. Did you not watch the Twilight series or read the books? Eh, it was tough for me. <laughs> it was tough for me. And when I did the one, tw- the Twilight stuff, I saw. I was more with the werewolves. Okay, I see. I'm just saying. You know, they maybe some vampires are misunderstood. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, yeah, vampires aren't misunderstood. You, you've got Although, you, you've got to you've got to challenge what you think you know about vampires. There are a lot of there are a lot of there's a lot of literature written that like vampire stuff is Marxist, and it's saying that they're the um, that they're the sort of capital got, class sucking. The, <laughs> no, you've, got, you've got a lot of time on your hands. I know this is why <laughs> you know this is why I'm single and you're my only friend. Um, <laughs> Because really, you don't say that on a date. You don't well, say, "Hey, do you ever think about capital and vampires?" So, but you know, you think about it. Like, so in a post-apocalyptic scenario, right? When when everything's wiped out, and if somebody said, "Right, we've got to build back better," I think it would be obvious that the first thing to do is to talk about what does that mean. Yeah, and and that it's. I just feel like um, you know we're in this moment where there are so many institutions, organizations, including your new president, by the way. Um, I'm not critiquing. I'm just noticing that, you know, are treating language like the starting point of a process to, you know, gain public buy-in and, and, and shape, shape the outcomes. When, in fact, you know, language should probably be the end result. Right. And it's that kind of language that everyone yearns for. Every single organization and institution that that put that phrase on the cover of their report should have instead say, we should start a conversation around what does this mean for us? What does Build Back Better mean for us, given that we do X? And invite everybody who has a stake in what we do to be a part of that conversation. 
because we're going to learn so much because everybody yearns for the conversation now. Instead, like we've got to have the answer. We've got to know what this means and where we need to go and how to get there. So let's put it out there. And yeah, I mean, that is how the world works. But going way back to the beginning, it feels to me like if that's how we're sort of pursuing visions of the future, then, you know, we're, we're going to get, we're going to bring the tips of our icebergs to that yep, yep. process and we're going to leave the bulk of it behind. So I'm, I'm going to get to that future maybe, but I'm not going to be there as my whole person. And, and just on a really personal, again, and I think the personal is usually the most prophetic and, and revelatory. You and I have been doing this podcast for a couple of years now, right? And we kind of stopped and started a few times. Our, our friendship began around a conversation on your book, which I think is fantastic. And you and I have never come up with a position paper on anything. I don't think we've explored some deep questions on this podcast. I don't think we've ever come up with an answer to anything. Like nobody, (laughs) like you couldn't come, you like you couldn't go to the Atlas uh, project or project as we would say in other parts of the world uh, and get a position paper on anything we've ever talked about. Right. We've just, we've, but we've spent a lot of time together talking and and thinking through things. And you know what? I think if you and I were pigeonholed and had to solve a problem together, like if we had to do some kind of consulting thing, that really there was some urgency to it, right? You and I could probably fi- help people figure some things out if, if we needed to in a pinch. But that would all be because of the time we spent on the non-urgent but important description of reality. You know, I mean, that, that I mean, that's, it's, it's all of, I mean, th- those things you can't, you can't overestimate the value of that kind of time. Yeah. I, um, well, I'm glad you found a way to rationalize this time we spent. <laughs> Yeah, and you know we've got some, and we've got some, you know. And hey, wait, wait till you get the the t-shirts, kids. I mean, when you get the t-shirts, it's going to be huge. Yeah, where where my mind went on that is that I I feel like uh you know people who people who give answers get followers. Yeah, and people who ask questions are part of something. Yeah, something greater. Um. And and the latter is just way more interesting to me because you know, to this thing you described that the more the more you know, the the weaker your connections to um to other people are going to be in an odd way. Or um, I think I would I'd want to say the more you think you know, because I think Okay, right. The isolated yeah. per, like there's a there's a kind of mm. Like all truth is relative. And by that I mean, like I'm not saying whether there's objective truth or not. I'm just saying there's not a truth that's not relative to other truths. So every truth, like if you put a truth out there, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. So what, right? Like unless it's connected to other truths, there's no meaning there, right? We could find like isolated truths that doesn't get us to a fuller picture of the world, right? So you could, so I think that, that if you're the kind of isolated person 
that amasses a bunch of data. You might get some small t truths or facts or something, but you'll never have a picture of the world because you can only have a picture of the world. And the idea of world is a communal reality, right? You're, you're in a world with others and in connection. And the more people you get together in conversation, again, the more you know you don't know. That speaks to me. So I look forward to next week and the next question. Yeah. And I think if we were doing infomercials, we would get fired because we would do <laughs> 15 minutes. <laughs> and we would have like steak knives and stuff. But but this is a long kind of uh, uh, at least endorsement for, I think, a process that's really worth um, connecting with. And we'll put, again, if you want to connect to Basecamp and the new emerging um, New Geographical Society, we'll put connections in the show notes. But really, thank you for listening. And we want to invite you on the journey because we need you. I look forward to it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.